Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church, located in Newberry, Florida, where Rocky McKinley is our lead pastor. Thanks for tuning in. Here's today's message. Yesterday, we hosted our annual Easter extravaganza at the DCC property on Newberry Road. And I was amazed at the turnout, absolutely amazed that in spite of the weather, almost 1,200 people showed up and we all had a great time. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it just, I, I, I can tell you, your pastor has been prayed up this week because I have been watching the Weather Channel app on my phone nonstop all week long. About 8 a.m. yesterday morning, I made the decision to stop looking at it because we were committed. We were going forward with it. I remember uh, myself and uh, Josh Bryant and Jennifer Ratter, we were, we were standing over by the, by the storage shed out on the property, and we were trying to make that game time decision. Do we move forward with this Easter? egg hunt or do we give in you know do we wave the white towel and, and the Holy Spirit prompted me and said let's pray and so the three of us stood there in a circle and we prayed and I pray God your word says that if the enemy moves in like a flood you'll raise up a standard against him and we prayed that and we had a beautiful time out there we got a little wet a little bit of sprinkles here and there but it never downpoured I believe God raised a standard against the enemy and we had a great time over, you know, right at 1,200 people showed up. It was an amazing day, as it always is out there. Wonderful workers and so many volunteers. But right at the moment that the egg hunt is just about to begin, the event starts at 11, but at noon is the egg hunt. And there's this anticipation building, you know, of, of man, those kids are about to go get all those eggs, you know, and, and 15,000 plus eggs that are sp- spread out over that. You know, it's an egg hunt, but the eggs aren't really hidden. You know, it's just kind of laying on the ground. So, you know, you don't have to like stick your hand in a gopher hole, you know, and hope you get the prize egg. You know, that's not it at all. Um, it, it's, it, it's just this amazing thing. And right before it begins every year, I like to go to the other end of the field where I can see all of the different age groups and how they're lined up and 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 when when they say go and those kids start you know it's like a swarm of locusts they just they're coming at you like this it's a little intimidating to be honest with you when you see it but you watch as the eggs just disappear and 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 that 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 row of kids that just those thousands you know hundreds of kids just just and and you just watch it as it comes but i remember right before they say go right before I'm standing there looking at those kids, and, and I got a little angry for a second. I'm not going to lie to you. I got a little angry. I guess I'm looking at them, and I'm going, you bunch of little punks. You don't know all the work that's gone into those eggs. They, didn't, they did not have a clue of all the work. They had no idea that last week, volunteers met over at the student center and for over two and a half hours they put pieces of candy in eggs and all the work that goes into trying to match the right egg you know it starts off you're putting color with color you know the same light color and stuff by the end of it man we don't care anymore red can go with green and you know blue can go with orange we don't care i mean well blue and orange go together anyway right but anyway anyway uh i'm just looking at those kids and i'm going you, you don't have a clue. And, and it's so trusting because those hundreds of kids are there to, to hunt Easter eggs and they're, and they're about to, to gather all those eggs. And they know. They're not walking by and picking up eggs and, and shaking the egg to make sure there's a piece of candy in it. 
Uh, no, they want to get as many eggs into their basket as they possibly can. And so they're just grabbing eggs, trusting that there is something inside of that egg, that it's not empty. Can you imagine the disappointment when they get over to where mom and dad are at and they're, they're going to take the candy out of their eggs and they open up the eggs and there are absolutely, there, there's nothing in it? There, there's no candy in the egg? Can you imagine the disappointment? We would have record-setting low numbers next year if we did that. They would not want to come back. It would just be like, what, what's the use? We're hunting eggs for no reason at all. We're hunting empty eggs. And I know how they feel because nothing ticks me off any more than when I go to the refrigerator wanting to pour me a glass of milk. You know what it's like. You're sitting there and you think about that pack of Oreos that's sitting in the pantry. And you're like, I want to, to drink some milk with, with the Oreos. And, and if you're like me, I go and get the cookies first. That's what I do. And then I get the glass and I walk up to the refrigerator, open the door, and I begin to pour. And you can tell when you pick it up that there's hardly anything in the container. And, and you begin to pour and you get like three drops of milk into the bottom of that glass. You ever been there? Anybody in the room ever been? Doesn't it tick you off? It's, it's Resurrection Sunday. The Lord's doing a work in pastor's life right now. I'm venting right now, okay? It ticks me off. And I'm, I'm like, really? Really? It doesn't stop me from putting one Oreo in my mouth and trying my best to make that three drops last, you know. And, you know. But, but it just ticks me off. I'm like, you, you couldn't pour three more drops into your glass, throw it away so that you wouldn't get my hopes up? I just don't like it. I don't like it when I go to the refrigerator and the milk carton is empty. I don't like that at all. We don't particularly care for empty things. That's the conclusion that I have come up with today. That we don't particularly care for empty things. Nobody likes to be sitting in a restaurant enjoying your meal and then you look at your glass and, and you want to get something to wash it down with and your glass is empty. For all of our servers in the room today, we don't like it when our glass is empty. I know you have a tough job. I know that you don't. And listen, Pastor Rocky, I am a great tipper. I am. I am. I, I believe at least 18 to 20% every time. And um, I, I'm just telling you, I believe in that. And I'm not the guy that if my glass remains empty, I'm not going to like take it out on the server, you know, and, you know, right. It's going to rain tomorrow. You better take your umbrella. There's your tip. You know, that kind of, I'm not like that guy. I'm, I don't do that kind of stuff. It's not who I am. It's not. But nobody in this room likes when you go into a restaurant and you, you, you just don't like it when your glass is not kept full. We don't like an empty glass. We don't like it when the gas tank in our automobile is empty. You ever had a family member or a friend drive your car and when you get in, they've left it on empty? Doesn't that tick you off? I don't prefer that at all. I don't like it. You can stop by the gas station. You can put some gas in this car just like I can. Everybody's capable of doing that. You know that feeling of frustration when you receive an email that there's supposed to be an attachment to the email? It even talks about the attachment in the email only to scroll down to the bottom of your email and you realize it's an empty email and there's no attachment. Anybody in the room ever had to deal with that? It's frustrating, isn't it? We don't like it when our bank account is empty. Amen? Amen. We don't like that at all. We don't like it when our bank account is empty. Even my dog, my dog, my miniature Dotson, this dog will come and sit at our feet and she will wear us out. She will bark 
as loud as she can and she will not relent. She will not let up. She will just sit there and bark and bark and bark. If one of her bowls in her room, now my dog does not have her own bedroom. I don't want you to think that right now. In our, in our, in our, our pantry, that's where her bowl and stuff sits. Some of you are like, man, pastor's really got a nice house. If a dog's got his own, no, no. In the pantry area there in, in, in where the washer and dryer and everything is at, she's got her own bowl. And if one of those bowls are empty, she will come and let us know about it. You can ask my family. So help me God. That dog will come in there. She will eat. She will be full. Her belly is full. But she does not like it when her food bowl or her water bowl is empty. It happened last night. We are sitting there watching TV. And, and she comes. She starts barking. And I'm like, she needs some food. So I go in there. And, and I pour her some food in her bowl. And I was like, Cece, it's fixed. And we actually pass in the kitchen. She's going in there to check it out. And, and I go and I sit down. She looks. By the time I'm sitting down, she's rounding the corner. She's coming back around and she starts barking her head off. You know why? I forgot to fill up the water bowl too. <laughs> she does not like it when one of her bowls is empty. Because we don't like it when, when, when things in our life are empty. Simply put, we prefer our lives to be full and not empty. I remember the night that I asked my wife to marry me. Now, I was not a pastor at the time, and I, I was working a secular job, and, and I had to work late this one particular night. And Mandy and I had plans. I'd already said, let's go to dinner. You know, we were living in Lake City separately, not together. We were living in Lake City. I had to make sure I clarified that. First service, I almost made it sound like we were living together, and I think it's very important. You know your pastor was not living with you know, his girlfriend at the time. But um, I called her. And I said, there's no judgment here. I mean, if that's, if that's where you're at. <laughs> it's, not, it's not me you have to worry about. No, 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 no. Let's keep going. Let's go. Keep going. And, so, and so I called Mandy from work and said, listen, I'm working late. I'm working late. And, um, and I, I still want to go out to, to dinner, you know. And she was like, it's getting so late. And I said, well, just let me run home. I'm going to get a shower real quick, and I'll come by, and I'll swing by, and I'll pick you up, and we're going to go to Gainesville. You know, we're, we're, let's, let's go somewhere. Because at the time in Lake City, there was really nowhere nice to eat. And when I say nice, at that day and age, you know, it was for us, it was Olive Garden. You know, that's where we wanted to go. And so, um, and so I said, let's still, we'll go out to eat. And uh, so I picked her up. It was probably 9.30 when I picked her up. It was so late. And we finally get to Gainesville, and, and we walk in Olive Garden, and it is just empty. There's nobody there. They take us to a back table in the back corner of the restaurant, and, and there is absolutely nobody in the restaurant. It's just Mandy, myself, and our server. You know, he's coming by making sure that our drinks are full. You know, and so, um, and so it's just us. I had not thought this thing out at all. I had the ring, you know, I had everything ready and, and all that. Didn't know where I was going to do this, but it felt like the right moment. You know, we're sitting in the back of a restaurant. There's nobody there. It's just us. And so I stood up from the table and even though we had been there together a dozen times before, Mandy looks at me, <clears throat> excuse me, Mandy looks at me and she says, Rocky, they, 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 they take the bill for you. You don't have to get up and go pay. I'm thinking to myself, Mandy, I know this is not Mel's diner. I don't have to go. You know, we're not at Waffle House. I get it. I don't have to stand up and go. She says, they, they, they get it for you. Just sit down. And at that moment, I reached into my pocket and I pulled out a ring box and, and I got down on my knee and I asked her to marry me. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like 
Had I opened that ring box and it was empty? Can you imagine the disappointment? I can promise you this. She's not a very materialistic person, but that right there would speak volumes. If I'm asking her to marry me and there is no ring, there's nothing there, not even an IOU, you know, there's nothing there. And I'm just saying, hey, will you marry me? I can tell you we would not be married today. It would not have happened had I presented her an empty ring box like this. She would have left me rightfully so because it would have been an empty promise. It would not have been meaningful at all. What if I told you today that the greatest gift that you have ever received was an empty promise. An empty promise is what changed your life. And so I want you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading at verse 18. Now this is before the crucifixion. This is before Jesus was arrested. Verse 18 says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. There's your empty promise. You turn over to Luke chapter 18 now. And in Luke 18, Jesus repeats this promise. Verse 31 says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Again, Jesus makes the empty promise. The promise is that there's going to be an empty tomb. Numerous times he reiterates this in his ministry. While he's teaching his disciples, he tells them over and over again that they will kill me, but I will not remain dead. I will not stay in the tomb. I am going to be resurrected. I am going to become alive again. And so he tells them this promise that there will be an empty tomb. Here's how he kept the promise. Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. 
On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Remember, they reminded them. Remember, he told you about this promise. He already told you this was going to happen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. It was at this moment that they realized that the promise that Jesus made of an empty tomb had now been fulfilled in their lives. That is, they remembered the promise that Jesus had made. Because on more than one occasion, Jesus had told them that he was going to rise from the grave. That his grave would not remain full. It was going to be empty. Joseph of Arimathea can be found in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And though there is very little known about this man, we do know a few things about him. We know that, that he was part of the council or the Sanhedrin. This was the very group of religious leaders that called for the crucifixion of Jesus. They were concerned about the movement that he was starting. They were afraid that there was going to be a revolt. We also know from our text today that Joseph did not agree with the Sanhedrin's decision, with the council's decision to kill Jesus. The book of John tells us that Joseph was a secret follower of Christ. He followed him from a distance. He met at night with believers. Probably because someone of his stature, someone of his importance, being a member of the Sanhedrin, it would have been career suicide for him had, had they known that he was meeting with the disciples of Jesus. These were a bunch of, of misfits, a fisherman, a, a greedy tax collector, and other misfits that made up the disciples of Jesus. And so for him to be a person of significance in the community, a person of significance in the Jewish faith, it would have been just an, an awful thing for him to be a part of this movement. So, so he was a secret follower of Christ. Mark's gospel mentions that Joseph had to gather up his courage to ask Pilate for the body of Christ. He had, he had to work it up. I don't know what that looked like, but he had to work it up. He had to gain courage. He risked himself and his reputation to care for and bury the body of, of the executed Jesus. Something happened, church. Something changed in this man's mind. No longer was he willing to only be a secret follower of Christ, but now he was willing to be a public follower of Christ. It was like he understood what Jesus was saying and he was willing to put his reputation on the line because now he gains up the courage. He gathers up the courage and he goes to Pilate and he asks, can I take care of his body? Little did Joseph know that he was fulfilling a prophecy from hundreds of years earlier by an Old Testament prophet by the name of Isaiah. In chapter 53 and, and verse 9 of Isaiah, it says that he was put into a rich man's grave. He was put into a rich man's tomb. And that fulfilled that prophecy from hundreds of years earlier. Luke makes it a point to tell us 
that no one had ever been buried in this tomb. That's so significant to me. Why would he go to the extreme of writing about it and telling us that no one had ever been buried in this particular tomb? We are not exactly sure why he points out this detail, but it could have been that Joseph had held Jesus in such a high honor that he wanted him to be the first to be buried in this particular tomb. Like, like maybe Jesus was, 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 was way too worthy to be buried in a used tomb, and so he wanted him to be the first. Maybe that's the reason why. In the Jewish culture, there were strict guidelines on how you are to deal with, with dead bodies. And so maybe, just maybe, in, in his mind, he thought, Let's put him in one that has never, ever been used. No dead body has ever been there. And so we can honor him this way. But don't forget that Joseph was a man that bought into the cause of Christ. The scriptures tell us that he was looking for the kingdom of God. You see, that's the problem with some people. Even church people sometimes. They've stopped looking for the kingdom of God and they've become comfortable in their religion. And this will mess you up. And that's what happened with the Sanhedrin. They, they were good, God-fearing people. But yet they had stopped looking for the kingdom of God. Because when you're looking for the kingdom of God, it will change the way you do things. You will not be inward-focused anymore. A church that is kingdom-minded would not be inward-focused. We will be outward-focused. That's why we'll do things for the community and free Easter extravaganza, family fest, and things like that, serve day. That's kingdom-minded stuff. And, and that's what was happening with this man. He was looking for the kingdom of God. I like to think that he knew that Jesus wouldn't be in there for very long. And so he was perfectly comfortable with saying, hey, let's put this man in my grave. It's never been used. It's, it's you know, being held for, for me and my extended family. But it's perfectly fine because he's not going to be there for very long. Uh, and, and how would he know that? It's because Jesus made empty tomb promises numerous times throughout his ministry. <laughs> in my messed up way of thinking. I like to think that there's no way possible they could have buried anybody else in that tomb. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Every other religious leader is either alive or dead. That's it. They're either alive or they're dead. Jesus is the only one who was alive, died, and came back to life. He's the only religious leader that has ever accomplished that. His tomb is still empty to this day. And so it makes me think, did they ever try and bury anybody in there? Because I believe the resurrection power is so strong in that tomb that if you laid somebody in there, they'd probably come back to life. This happened. I believe it's 2 Kings, prophet Elisha. His bones are laying in a tomb. Some, some, some Israelites throw a man's body inside of the tomb. And when he lands on the bones of the prophet, the Bible says that the man came back to life. And you're telling me that a prophet's bones can do that, but the resurrection power of Jesus Christ would not cause somebody to be buried in his tomb to come back to life? Here's in something interesting for you. You ready? That tomb is still empty today. There's no dead body in that tomb. It's still empty. Buddha's body was cremated and his ashes were spread into uh, uh, different monuments all over. Muhammad is buried in the city of Medina, Saudi Arabia. Even Confucius is buried in a cemetery in China with what they say are 100,000 of his closest relatives. But Jesus is alive. 
His tomb is empty. He is alive. And according to the book of Mark, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. When Joseph of Arimathea comes to him and requests the body, it, it catches Pilate a little off guard. He actually tells one of the soldiers, you need to check this out. You need to look into this. You need to investigate this. He did not expect Jesus to die so quickly because crucifixions usually didn't just last a few hours. It was very common for them to last a few days, very cruel days before someone would die. But Jesus... The price that he paid for you and the price that he paid for me, there's no doubt he had suffered just a, a terrible beating at causing critical internal injuries and damage. And instead of being tied to a cross like so many were, they made sure that they went all out on him and they nailed him to the cross, causing him to have debilitating blood loss. And then to avoid a conspiracy and a cover-up, Pilate, Pilate posted guards at the tomb and, and he sealed it shut because he was afraid that, that the followers of Jesus would come in the middle of the night, steal the body, and claim that, the, that he had risen from the dead just as he had promised. What Pilate didn't realize, church, is that God doesn't need our help. He didn't need anybody going and stealing the body. He didn't need a bunch of crazed believers doing his work behind the scenes because God all in himself is perfectly capable of raising the dead. God doesn't need our help in resurrecting lives. That's his business. That's what he does. You see, the cross is why we celebrate, church. Don't forget this. The cross is why we celebrate. There was a cruel punishment that took place on a cross. I don't want to mess anybody up in the room. And listen, if, if you're wearing a cross today on your, on your shirt or, or maybe on your necklace or on a charm on your bracelet or something, I don't want to mess you up. I mean, my class ring when I was in high school, underneath the stone, it had a cross. And I have no problem with that at all. But don't you think for one second that it is a beautiful picture. It, it, it's not anything of beauty. It would be like us today wearing a T-shirt that, that, that has a, a guillotine on it or a noose on it. Or a charm around our bracelet, or, or on our bracelet, or on our, our necklace that, that has a guillotine on it, because it is a cruel, cruel weapon of punishment. And that's what a cross is. A cross represents a cruel weapon of punishment. The cross is why we celebrate, but the tomb is what we celebrate. We celebrate an empty tomb because that proves that there's resurrection power in our Savior. Most empty promises, well, they will leave you disappointed, but, but, but not the empty promise that Jesus made. The promise of an empty tomb, it was full of hope, it was full of promise, it was full of potential. And can you imagine at the moment that Satan figured it out, when Satan realized that that tomb was empty, he had to cringe with fear. Because he knows resurrection didn't stop at an empty tomb. Resurrection didn't stop there. We don't celebrate just an empty tomb today. We celebrate resurrection that continues to happen. And there are people all over this room that you know what I'm talking about because your life has been resurrected also. An empty tomb meant that the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead was available to give life to dead things in our life. 
That's the promise. That's what it meant. That means that if your career is dead right now and you're struggling and you don't know which way to go, an empty tomb speaks life into your future. An empty tomb, it calls your prodigal son and your prodigal daughter home. An empty tomb calls your marriage out of hopeless despair. An empty tomb resurrects your sinful soul. An empty tomb resurrected my sinful soul. And don't you count out what God has already called forth. Because when God calls it forth, nothing, not Pilate, not a soldier, not a seal around a tomb, not a rock, nothing can stop the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. An empty tomb says those things that are dead can live again. It's time that we find comfort in the void. Be reassured in the nothingness. You see, sometimes it's those empty moments in life that we become scared and terrified. But the emptiness of a tomb brings us hope. The emptiness of the tomb gives us a future. The cross reminds us of the sin that put him there. But an empty tomb reminds us of the salvation from that sin that he provides. And so I thank God for his empty promise because it came to pass and the tomb is empty. Maybe you're here today and you, you feel like your life needs to be resurrected. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what you're going through. But I believe what God wants you to hear today is that it did not stop at the tomb. He's still resurrecting lives today. He's still making a way. He's still giving hope. He still promises you a hope and a future. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. We pray you have been blessed by today's message. We would love to meet you in person. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org or call the church office at 352-472-3284. Thanks again for listening. Destiny Community Church, for life's journey.